This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. Okay, so here's how this went down. We had organized this social panel interview well over a month ago, and I did what I normally do and laid it all out in a way that made sense to me, and that would hit on the key points about this particular subtype. And the episode never recorded. And so this was take two, except I was not around to run the interview. And so Aaron took over and this is what you have. I'll admit, it honestly feels like they did not touch on almost any of the specific material because they were so busy chit-chatting. It was like a group of girlfriends just hanging out. And frankly, now that I think about it, that couldn't have been a more appropriate way to run this interview. You will not get the nitty gritty details about this instinct, but you will get an overall sense of how this instinct shows up in the world. You're also gonna get a very long discussion about ones and about Brene Brown, cause uh, that's just the way these guys roll. How are you guys? Is it your birthday, Sam? It is. Happy birthday. Thank you. Well, cheers to your birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Jessica Headley. I live in Oklahoma. I am um, an 873 tri-type. I am social. And um, if you do wings, I'm an 8 wing 7. Yeah, I play the piano for a living, but I fight for fun. Um, I am Sam, Samantha Richards. Um, I live, I'm from originally from Los Angeles, California. I currently live in Denver, Colorado. Um, I am an eight, four, six is my tri-type and my stacking is social, sexual, self-pres. I'm Stacy, and I currently live in Jacksonville, Florida, originally from Georgia, the Atlanta area. I am a eight, three, six, and my stacking is social, self-pres and sexual last have five kids, also certified Enneagram coach, but I use it more for workplace training. I'm Erin and I co-host the Enneagram 8 podcast with Joe. I am an 837, 873. It's debatable on the day. <laughs> and my stacking is social, sexual, self-press. Do you want to give the three adjectives to describe your instinct? Community, maybe leadership, and energy. Dynamic, empowering, and communicative, I guess. I think I'll go with bold, loyal, and fun. Say caring, thoughtful, and community. You walk into a party, tell us what happens when you walk in the door, while you're there, what you notice, and how you spend your time. For me, when I walk into a party, usually the first thing I do is just like make a quick scan of the room or the building or whatever and kind of pick up on the energy. Usually I kind of locate who's in charge or who is going to be a problem or not a problem I just kind of like pick up on the dynamics of everything really quick and then usually if I'm there just to like hang out with friends I just kind of like float around and hang out with different people and a lot of times I just naturally connect people to other people like we host a lot of um bad movie nights at our house and we make a bunch of waffles for all of our friends and people bring their own alcohol or whatever but I have gym friends and I have music friends um, my husband is a musician too. So we just have a bunch of like random communities that we're a part of. And so it's fun to like, I don't know, connect someone that's an opera singer to someone that's an MMA fighter and then like watch them become friends. So usually I'm kind of bouncing around, like hanging out with people. And then if a problem pops up, I can go handle it and then get back to having fun. Literally yesterday I got back from like a bachelorette party weekend 
where like my social instinct was just like on full display um, because I was like the connector of everybody, but also my social battery ran out so fucking fast. So anyway, so if I walk into a party, like Jess said, the first thing I definitely do is like scan. Um, I am really, really good at like reading people and kind of like their motivations and like their intent. So like I can see their behavior and just like immediately kind of like know who they are and what they're trying to do and kind of read the dynamics of that. And so if I'm with friends, I usually tend to like stick with them until I've kind of gotten a good feel of like everybody around. And then I kind of start intermingling. Um, If I'm by myself, I kind of like just immediately get drawn to whoever like the most, I would say like authentic and charismatic people in the room. Um, But I can very much tell the difference between like fake party host charismatic and like authentic charismatic. So like trying to go to the people who are like definitely just exuding the most like authenticity, who I feel safe with, who I feel like I can relax and just really express myself with and not feel that like weird, awkward tension or pressure or whatever. Yeah, I have to agree with a lot of that. So I just got back from a weekend away as well, but this was with um, a different group of women and I don't know all of them very well. I know some of them. And so it was really interesting. I was thinking about this question as I was there. I was like, what, you know, who am I drawn to? What am I doing? And, you know, I had a few people who I knew very well and I noticed myself connecting with them, but also reading the room, seeing who I wanted to speak to people that seemed interesting. And I I didn't want to close myself off to just my people. I was very open to wanting to hear everybody's stories. And, but as it progressed, I'm very much like you, I look at the power dynamics. I see, you know, who's running it, who's not. If all the conversation is going towards one person, I like to bounce it back to someone who isn't, hasn't had as much, you know, time to talk. I kind of like have this weird eye for an ear for um, the person that, I don't know, seems to be like not expressing themselves as much and wanting to give them a voice. But I also just get so worn down by small talk. And it's not just any small talk. I do like connecting with people and I like to find a connection. That's like a goal of mine. If I meet somebody, I want to figure out how we connect. But if I have to keep the conversation going, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm done. So I was like, a friend of mine came over to me at one point, and she and I are pretty close. And she was like, "How are you doing?" And I was like, "I'm I'm done with small talk. Like, if you see me having small talk again, come rescue me because I can't do it anymore." <laughs> I'm exactly the same. It kills me. It's fine when you can find connections and you can keep the conversation moving because you can you can keep connecting and keep connecting more. But when those connections are like, "Yep," and then nothing, like I can't keep doing this, nor do I want to. So yeah. I'm out. I'm the same as all of you. I, I think we're all very similar in, the, in that I, we walk into a room and I do scan the whole room to see who's here, to see which people I do know that I might want to talk to so that I can make sure that I get to the people I want to see. Um, if I'm talking to new people, I'm always looking for a connection immediately. Where do you live? Where do your kids go to school? Where did you grow up? Something that we can say, oh yeah, like and find someone or something in common. But if it continues just to be that, then yeah, I'll, I'll just keep moving till I find uh, my people that I'm really comfortable with and then stay in that place. I do get exhausted. Like when, when we do this for a few days, I also get exhausted in a room like that when I know, because we do know how to read the room. I know when people are stepping back from me or when they find me too much or when they find me, oh, I don't want to say aggressive or, but I, I often, we don't hold back well, right? Like if they're saying things that we dis- I disagree with, I have no problem kind of saying, hey, like, have you ever considered it like this? Or what about this take or whatever? And I can tell when people are like, I don't want that. So I also went away this weekend on a girl's weekend. 
It seems to be the weekend for it. You guys are having all the fun. Jess, now you have to go away. And I was with two friends and one is a longtime friend of mine and one is a newer friend. But it was hard at times because my longtime friend and I, we don't see eye to eye on stuff that we used to. And we're not as close as we are. So there was a lot of holding back this weekend. And it, I forget how tired I get from that till I'm in that situation. And when it's like a couple days in a row, it becomes becomes very tiring. <laughs> I, th- I wonder, like, I think that's because we sense all the things, right? So we just, we adjust ourselves constantly to a certain extent. And I don't feel like it's a natural place for me. It's yeah. a concerted effort. I think you can make everybody feel comfortable. Uh-huh. But at the same time, t- unless they rub you the wrong way and you don't really care if they feel comfortable anymore. There's like a fine line, yeah. there, right? Yeah. Do you find that you guys will sometimes sacrifice your comfort for the sake of the group? I was just about to say that one of the things that I've been learning is like, and I think most eights have this in general, but like massive main character syndrome. And like, I've been really trying to learn how to like pull back and be like, this is not about me. And like my emotion and my experience in this is not like the primary one. And so like, especially this past weekend was like a bachelorette party. And like, I knew the bride, I knew her sisters because I'd known the bride for so long. And then I met one of the other bridesmaids, two of the other bridesmaids are like sisters of the groom. And they were the two most fucking annoying people I've ever met in my entire life and they were just instantly exhausting like there were so many times that I was so overwhelmed and I was just like I hated the experience that I was having but I was like I had to keep telling myself I was like this is not about me there is so much more to this that is going on that is more than my experience I can be responsible for my experience and remove myself and recharge where I need to but like if I don't pull myself out of this right now I'm going to get to that point where I'm like I don't really care if you're comfortable or not because if I'm comfortable uncomfortable I'm taking everyone out with me but I had to like pull back and be like this is not about me I need to regulate myself and let everybody else have the time that they're going to have regardless that's so funny the main character syndrome I've never heard that but that. Wow, that resonates for sure I just think everybody sees it like I do like there was this one girl that I just didn't feel very authentic and I was just like kind of like rolling my eyes on the inside when she was talking at one point and everybody was like yes you're the best you're so sweet and all this stuff and I was like oh wow like I'm not feeling that vibe like it was just <laughs> So different. But I also feel like compliance sometimes for me goes back to if I don't comply, it seems like weak almost. Does that make sense? So I've wondered that. Like, yeah. like if I like can't go along with some things or I'm not too easygoing, then I feel like that makes me weak in a sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. It feels yeah. inauthentic. No. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. not adaptable. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I adjust myself because I think I'm helping the person in front of me because I can feel all their uncomfortableness. But really what I'm doing is making me feel better by making them feel comfortable because I no longer feel their discomfort with their comfortable. Yeah. 100%. It comes down to like your energy too, because we, I don't know, and this could just be the social aspect of us, but we get a lot of energy off of other people's energy. So if someone's energy is like kind of dragging everyone down, they're like, oh no, stop. Like I, I need my energy. Like we got to gotta generate this back up. And so whether it's one extreme or the other, it's more draining whenever someone's kind of like flatlining in a conversation or they're just kind of boring. <laughs> like that just You're- kind of, it kills our energy and we need the energy to keep moving one way or another do you ever block those people yeah (laughs) that's how I I survived those like if I can't move them or change it the narrative or the energy in the room I just block them like they don't exist anymore like they're out of my peripheral vision I think I do that yeah too much (laughs) (laughs) that's easy (laughs) 
But I think that because we also sense the temperature in the room, if we're sensing that constantly, we can't get what it is we're there for, right? And we understand the bigger picture of the group as a whole and what they need. And if that person is, t- it's they, they suck my energy the most because it's the person I want to change the most and right. probably the most unchangeable. Right. And I think that that has like, that goes so much to the instinct stackings, especially for you and me, Erin, where self-pres is last. I think eights in general are just like, we just take it for granted and accept that we're going to be okay. And that like, we're strong enough to handle whatever it is. Like we're going to be okay regardless. So like, it's so much easier to change ourselves to fit the thing, even when it doesn't feel the best than it is to try to like control and change everybody in a party that's making you uncomfortable. It's so much easier to like justify it as like, I'm doing this for the greater good. I'm doing this to change the energy. I'm going to be fine at the end of the night. And it's like very weird how like the conflict between like, I am the, I'm the main character and here's my experience. And this feels what's authentic to me. And also like, I'm changing and adapting myself for whatever the situation is for the greater good of the group. And it's like reading those dynamics and feeling both of those things. So like keenly in the moment with us being the social subtype, we're at conflict with our main motivation, right? And so it's like, I love living in Jacksonville because I live in, if you don't know, we're big University of Georgia fans and University of Florida is right down the road and huge rival. So I live in enemy territory, but I love being different. But I also love being the part of a bigger community of Georgia fans, if that makes sense. But I love living in enemy territory. It's like my favorite thing, especially when we're kicking butt every year. So (laughs) it's even more fun. I think I love that too. I don't think I realize that. I love going other places and sporting our hockey teams or... Yes. And being the per- the one person out in the crowd. Yes. Like, I, away games are my favorite. Yes. Speaking of which, I just have to side note this, but the Everblades beat Jacksonville, which was quite great for us. Yeah, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Me and Sam are like, yay, sports. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like sports, just not those sports. Yeah. And it's funny because like, I'm not a huge basketball person, but like the last big like basketball matchup was like the Denver Nuggets versus the LA Lakers. And like, I'm living in Denver, but like, I'm currently in LA. So I was like, no matter which way this goes, I win. (laughs) Do you find that you can jump on like a sports bandwagon at any time if you're in it? Yeah. Oh yeah. You don't have to understand or love the sport, but if you're there, you are all in. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm a big Dodgers fan in terms of baseball, just from like growing up here. And so like basically anywhere else I go, everybody hates the Dodgers because we're so much better than everybody. Kind of like UGA just like kicking ass this year. Like that's usually Dodgers and MLB. And so I'll go to a Rockies game and I'll be like, yeah, go Rockies. Y'all actually suck. The real team isn't <laughs> here, but like I'm here. So go Rockies. We are so excited to share something new we've been working on. We have now launched the Enneagram 8 community. This is a community where Enneagram 8s can come together to feel seen and heard for the heart of who they are, a place where you can just be you. If you're interested in joining us here, go to the Enneagram8community.com to sign up. Do you have a need to be in control? Tell me what that looks like and why you think that is, because we're assuming everyone's going to say yes. Yeah, so for myself... I don't want to control other people, but if other people are going to have influence over what's going to happen to me, I do feel the need to control that or at least make sure that like I have a way that I'm still going to be able to succeed in the thing that I want to do. I'm pretty good at delegating tasks and not needing to like micromanage or be in control of things, but the overarching idea and the plan is like what I'm in control of. And like, 
I have a broader idea of like where that goal is and what we need to do to get to that goal and what needs to happen. And I don't necessarily need to be in control of every single thing that happens to get there. But like, I do want to feel like I have the agency and autonomy to get it there. I keep going back to this party that I was at, but like, I was one of the only sober ones. And so like this bridal party is 14 people and they're all drunk on a boat and I'm trying to get everybody back safely. And it was like hurting cats. But like, I felt like instantly I was like put in that position, but I was like ready to go. I was like, I know exactly what we're doing. You go here, you go here, you shut the fuck up. You sit down, stop running away. You like... <laughs> And like, I immediately just started like taking control of like air traffic control, just directing people where they needed to go and they were all drunk. So it didn't work. But like, that's definitely where I think I get in my zone is where I have kind of the like overarching, if it's like a group setting, I have kind of an overarching view of things and I can help facilitate things where they need to go. Generally in life, like my priority is like my own goals and making sure I have control over myself and like the environment and the things that need to help me get there is where I feel the most need for control. My knee-jerk reaction is to say, no, I don't need to be in control. But when I think about it in every setting I'm ever in, I really think about how this could be better or what could be changed or how to be more efficient or what I've been noticing myself saying lately is I'll, I'll give a solution or I'm like, when you be like, why didn't we do this? But like, nobody asked me, like nobody asked me. Like I have to keep reminding myself, nobody asked me for my opinion. Although I'm usually right about it, but nobody asked me. I didn't even realize how much I struggled with control until I started diving deeper into this. For instance, when we moved down here, we had four kids, five and under. My husband was working all the time. We had no family, no support. And I just remember I, I spiraled, like mentally, I just spiraled because you talk about an eight who needs control in their life with four young kids by themselves. Like, no, like there was no sanity happening. And I just remember being so frustrated with every little thing with them or with my husband. Thankfully, this mentor came into my life and she started walking with me through this stuff. And she helped me realize like, okay, in that moment, what can you control? And that was years ago, but I still, you know, that's just something I think I'll always kind of battle internally is, what can I control? That's just myself, my reaction to this. How am I going to handle this situation? How am I going to do the next right thing? And so it's more of an internal struggle, like you were saying, control of myself. Yeah, I had an incident last night. You'll all appreciate this because it goes around baseball. But my son is in, in baseball and they needed coaches and there weren't enough. And my husband offered too late and we got put with this girl who doesn't have children and volunteered to coach. She's terrible. I can't even tell you. So when my husband told me that my husband doesn't say much about anybody, when they came home from meeting the coach and getting their jersey, he just said, it's going to be interesting. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and he said, she's odd. That's all he would say. And then my son said, her first thing she told us is we can't chew gum. And then she told us that if we're late to practice, we're going to get benched. And then this is rec ball. This is not competitive ball. <laughs> this is like some kids have never played ball. And this is where they're showing up immediately from game one. I said to my husband, like, either she has to go or I need to bring AirPods because I can't do it. Like, I can't sit in this situation and not be in control of this entire situation that's unfolding. That's going to end badly. Anyway, fast forward now, we're three or four weeks in and I'm legitimately getting her kicked out of the organization. So last night she, she took our kids aside and I watched what, what was happening and she made them take a knee in the field and she berated them for 15 minutes about how horrible they are. And 
I was very far away, so I couldn't hear any of it. And I watched another coach walk across the field and stand beside her. And I said to my husband, I'm telling you, he's doing that because she's doing something wrong right now, because that's what I would do. I would walk up to be another present person to say, something's wrong here. You're being watched, right? Like check yourself. My son got in the car. We started to leave. Thankfully, the car was moving when he told us this because I would have gotten out and gone back. (laughs) But she told the kids that if they play again, like they did that night, they would have to find a new coach because they're so terrible. So that was the final straw for me. 11 and 12. And I'm telling you, this is not competitive ball. This is rec ball. Like this is just pick up rec ball. So a couple of kids went home crying. I am like going to explode in the car, right? Like I need to take control of the situation because no one else is. And I know what to do. So my husband is like, calm down. Like, don't make this bigger than it is, which of course makes me more angry. And I'm like sitting there, like just willing myself to be silent. And I zipped it. We got home and we were in the office and closed the door. And I was like, like, you have to deal with this or I'm dealing with this right now. Like I am going to call the organization and this is done. So he's like, let's just check. We need to do the right thing. We got to check in with other parents, make sure our kid is saying the right, you know, validate what he's saying kind of thing. So we don't look stupid if he's the only kid who heard it this way. So I know he's right in my head, but the rest of my body is just like, I knew from day one, my body was telling me, this is not a good, safe person. Like I could have told you from day one, this is what happened. Long story short, I sent out an email to all the parents saying, here's how my kid is feeling tonight. Does anybody else feel the same? My husband is willing to coach. It was like instantaneous. I got flooded with emails of like, oh my goodness, this has been going on. The other things that were said at other times were this, that my kid had never talked about. Anyway, and all I could think is everyone feels the same way. And I'm the only person who's forcing the change. The leadership vacuum effect. Like I really did have to be in control of this situation. I needed to get back some control, but it was so interesting to me that sometimes we're supposed to do that, right? Because here's all these 11 and 12 year olds going home crying for nonsense and all the adults being very upset, but no one showing them and demonstrating this isn't okay. And then removing them from that situation, right? There's so many times I know I can force change in a movement, like a very large movement or a very small movement, but I have to calculate now the cost to me. So yeah, I might make that happen, but what does it cost me and my family to make that happen? Do I struggle with that? First, it was like, well, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And then it's like, well, no, I can do what I can do. And then like, leave the rest to God. Like I can't, I can't carry the weight of the world. Ideally, I would want X, Y, Z done, but if it's not mine to do, or if it's not me, who it affects, if it's somebody else's work to do, whether that be like, you have a friend and you know that they would be way better off without this like shithead boyfriend. That's not my work to do. Not my circus, not my monkeys. I'm not the one facing these consequences. And therefore it's time for me to step back and let, you know, que sera, sera. (laughs) I think it's harder for us socials because we do see the solution and we do see the big picture and we do see the end and how to get there really quickly and easily. And we're so focused on the greater good. I mean, since I was middle school, I can remember thinking that way or younger, you know, just of like big picture, greater good, fighting for those who can't fight for themselves. Like I just remember having that like fire burning in me from such a young age. And I know that's you know, there for a reason, for a purpose. But like you said, what's mine to do? What am I called to instead of just carrying everybody's burdens and then getting burned out? I think the hard thing too is we see the little problem pop up so early. Just like Erin said, she saw the problem person like instantly. And then she had to wait 
very patiently for the rest of the community to realize how bad it was, even though she was like, this person's a problem, I can take it out. But then she had the maturity to let the rest of the community see that with her. And that's the hard part because we see it instantly. And then you're like, ah, we've got to (laughs) wait for everybody else to see this too. And then it's and the I worst think- feeling when you're like, I knew this was going to happen and I zipped <laughs> it anyway and I sat down and I shut up, which goes against everything I know and all oh. of my instincts. And it still happened. A 10-year-old says, mom, you're always right. I'm like, never forget that, buddy. <laughs> yes, I am. Please remember. Being a social aid, I act very much like a two. And so like up until my 20s, it was very much like not only would I identify the problem early, but then I would anticipate everybody else's needs. And then it would be very much like, okay, because I was the one that saw this problem, because I'm the one that knows how to get here, I'm going to do it for everybody else. And having to like consciously take that step back and be like, all right, I can't do this for other people. You can lead a horse to water. I can help them try to get there. But like at a certain point, I have to realize that like, even though I can see it, it's not mine to fix. (laughs) We are good at anticipating everybody else's needs. Do you find that the people in your world expect that from you, that you're the person who's going to lead, that you're the person who's going to pick them up, that you're the person that's going to create the movement for all of you or your family or your, right? And they wait and let you take it. And when you don't, they don't know what to do. And no one else does step in. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Like that's where I see it because it puts you in between a rock and a hard place so many times. And I'm like, I'm not doing that again. I'm not going to like step in and say the thing in the family, blah, blah, blah. Cause it's just like the same old song and dance. But then it's like, I just can't not sometimes. Or my mom like will say like, can you coordinate our family trips? Or can you, you know what I mean? And like, I don't want to do that. Cause I don't like, there's so many, there's, I'm one of six and there's so many families, so many, there's like, almost 20 kids now. And it's just a lot. And so like, I don't want to be that person, but they do rely on me to be the bad guy to be like, we're staying here. We're doing this. If you don't like it, sorry about you come or not like that's, but it, it does just fall it's, naturally. It's, it's like because a, we can. And because I don't get my feelings hurt. My mom was calling me the other day and she told me she picked up my kids from school when we were moving. She was like, I accidentally cut them in line. And, you know, everybody's probably so upset with me. I cut you in the carpool line or whatever. And um, if you don't know about that, that's cutthroat carpool line. (laughs) We'll post pictures of your license plate and we'll like cuss you out online. Like it's a big deal. So she was saying this and I was like, mom, I don't care. Like if someone, you know, whatever, she's like, I'm glad it's you and not your sister. Cause she and I would both be crying on the phone right now. Like I just can't handle that. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're, I'm, I'm good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm the oldest of five growing up. Of course, my siblings just kind of like never questioned me because I was the oldest and we functioned well. And I kind of had a handle on everybody. And so now that we're all grown, Sometimes even my my little brother, who's, I guess, almost 30 now, he will still call me and be like, Jess, what should I do in this situation? Like, I don't know. Like, what do you want to do? Like, what what works best for you and your family? And he's like, I don't know, but I just need you to tell me. I'm like, okay, well, I can talk you through it, but I'm not going to like tell you what to do. But I even get that from my mom. My mom will come to me. She's a one but she'll come to me for like pep talks because I'm the enabler when it comes to like, I guess I empower her to like say, say the mean thing or say the bad thing. Cause she'll think like, Oh, I can't, I can't tell my boss this because he's my boss and that's rude. I'm like, no, your boss is a dick. And this is why. And here's what you can go tell him and you need to stand up for yourself. And here's like, I don't know, I can like hype her up, but my family comes to me for the, I don't know, permission to say the thing or do the thing. 
And then when it comes to like organizing stuff family-wise, I usually try to delegate because I'm like, look, you're a part of the family too. So let's divvy this up and figure it out. But it has taken, you know, therapy and boundaries, especially like navigating that with my parents who are like the authority, but then like realizing that they're looking to me for leadership. That was really weird coming into adulthood. And so setting boundaries with them of like, hey, here's here's what I'm going to do and here's what I'm not going to do. So, yeah, it's been a wild ride for sure. That reminds me a lot of like if any of you have ever read Brene Brown and her talking about like overfunctioning versus underfunctioning. And like especially when you're like the oldest child of a lot of kids or like in my case, like an only child, like and you are constantly in that like overfunctioning state that it like basically is a permission structure for everybody else to underfunction. Because like you're going to make up the slack no matter what. And then you kind of get like stuck in this cyclical, like if I don't overfunction, then nothing gets done. And so like it creates this thing. And so that's where like the boundaries and accountability need to come in that like I need to take on less and y'all need to take on more and we all need to be on par. But like the more you let yourself overfunction, the more you let other people underfunction. And then like when you come back down to equilibrium, it almost feels like you're underfunctioning because you've been up here for so long. And so like, you have to not only work through the like, I guess, guilt almost, or like whatever narrative you have in your head saying like, you're not doing enough. You need to like hush that and let other people like take responsibility for like what they need to get done. And like that process, I think, especially for AIDS, because we're kind of like born into that overfunctioning role. It's like so hard, but I think it just comes right back to like what we were talking about of like the control versus self. And like, I can't control what other people do or what other people say or what other people are going to do. I can only control myself and like needing to understand when good enough is good enough and what's my responsibility versus what's other people's responsibility and understanding like I can, you can't hold somebody accountable, right? Like there is no such thing as like external accountability to somebody else. Like you can help them get there and you can empower them to do the thing, but like people can only hold themselves accountable to themselves and they're only going to do like what they are motivated to do or what aligns with their values. And so it's like finding that like equilibrium within that process is so freaking hard, especially for people who are constantly in that like over-functioning, adapting, like anticipating other people's needs, seeing the problem early, wanting to solve all the problems, like doing all those things and like forcing yourself to see the greater perspective than just what's in here and like what's my instinct to do. I think we're going to rename this to like how to become a healthier social eight. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like a lot of us are on this journey of a lot of self-reflection and growing and so I I think we probably looked a lot different 10 years ago than we do today and I love that over-functioning that's so interesting I would I do relate to that significantly podcast you did on it oh let's talk about forming alliances and how we know how to work the system to get what we need one of the ways we meet our instinctual need is through like harmony and our social role it's the me and you instinct and being able to like bring ourselves together with other people and align with people and see our role and their role and mesh together basically so Jess can you talk about how that yeah I think that's one of our superpowers is kind of building teams because the same way that we scan the room to see who's the weakest link or who's the alpha or who's the fun one or whatever, we can also scan like to see what people people's strengths are. I think when we focus on stuff like people's strengths, so I have board meetings all weekend. So y'all are out partying and I'm working this weekend, but <laughs> 
I have kind of like come into a leadership role in this board for this Oklahoma Music Teachers Association. And um, it's basically recognizing a bunch of people's strengths and empowering them, but also networking, that network side of things where you're connecting people that are going to do well together. So I think we kind of see like, okay, this per- this person should volunteer with this person because they're going to mesh really well and they're going to team up well together and they have strengths that complement each other. And so it's not like, oh, this person needs to fix that. This person needs to fix that. It's like, okay, let's tweak a couple of things. And get the best out of everybody on the team. Yeah. And so then there's not competition. There's not jealousy. There's not drama. It's literally people operating in their strengths together. And with me just kind of being the hype person. And again, I'm not micromanaging them. I'm not saying like, you have to do this task a certain way. I'm here in this role, at least. So I'm the vice president for auditions and competitions, which is like kindergarten through college competitions for scholarships and stuff so we we have like thousands of students that participate in these events but I'm not going to sit here and micromanage like how each audition goes or what judges are the best judges I'm going to enable the people in charge of the individual events so like I had one person email me and she is in charge of like collegiate stuff so like all the universities are competing in piano against each other for scholarships and she sent me an email like is it okay if I make an expense to pay for, um, what was it, like, desserts for the judges? And I was like, yeah, I, you don't need to act, just do that. Like, tell the treasurer, like, that. you don't need my permission. What else are you not telling me? Like, what else do you need? And she was like, actually, it would be more functional if we did. And then she gave me this whole list of stuff. I was like, cool, do it. You've got a vision, go for it. I don't need to control every little thing that you need to do. But I think that's like something that we thrive in is seeing people's strengths and then letting them run with it. No, I think I would agree a lot with that. I think a lot of like what I've learned from leadership and like that empowerment standpoint is like um, I've since I was a teenager, I went through a program and then I volunteered, you know, for the 10 years since it's called like Hugh O'Brien Youth Leadership. Um, But it's basically like these seminars that we put on for high schoolers the tagline is kind of like, we don't teach you what to think, we teach you how to think. And so it goes in three phases. And the first one is leadership for self, where you learn like, what are my strengths and weaknesses and what can I do really well versus what do I might need help with? And then you kind of move to the next phase, which is leadership in a group setting and kind of exactly what you said, Jess, of like, how do my strengths complement? Like, you know, Aaron might have a strength that is one of my weaknesses and Stacy might have a strength that really complements my strengths. And so how can we all work together in this like group setting. And then the third one is like leadership for society. And how do you actually implement that? Not just in like, Hey, this idea would be really nice, but now what do we do to actually implement and create change in the greater, in your high school, in your college, in your community, in your state, in your country, in the world, whatever. And so I think that like from that, I've taken a lot of those kind of approaches to when I'm coordinating anything or leading anything, or even just like with interpersonal relationships, like constantly looking for that. And then I think my like innate eight ability to a see kind of the broader picture of things and the end goal and where we need to go and being very solution oriented and like I think I see a lot of the problems and pitfalls and create like contingency plans and solutions and like I can do a lot of that within like a split second at the very beginning I'm very good at like anticipating those things but like letting people get there on their own and then that plus being really, really good at seeing people's like innate motivation and dynamic and like, how do they operate? How do they function? What are they trying to get out of these things? Like this almost sounds a little manipulative or a little like algorithmic, 
but like at the same time, I think that gives me like a very good sense of like, how is this person, how can I get the best out of them? Like you said, Aaron, like how can I kind of use this to either get what, what I need done, make this a successful relationship? Where can I connect with them? Where can I connect them to other people? Where can I like use this for fruition to succeed in whatever goal we're trying to create? And basically just kind of inner parsing that, whether it be like a friendship, a connection and a project, a board meeting, like whatever it might be. I think it's strategic. We would make great evil masterminds too. <laughs> we would, Jess. No matter what you're doing, whether it's, you know, parenting to leading a board meeting, like you were saying, everybody wants to be seen and everybody wants to be heard. So the way that I think the Enneagram helps that is, if you can relate with somebody, especially eights, we can kind of read people. We read people very well and kind of see through certain things. Or I just, I'm very good at, I know you're not supposed to type people, but I'm very good at it. Okay. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things where I can kind of identify with them, make them feel seen and heard and validated, which is something I'm learning to do as I am growing is validating people's feelings and where they are in that or my own. And I've never been good at that. But if you make someone feel that way, then I mean, honestly, that opens up a floodgate. Really? It really does. And I struggle with that. Is that inauthentic? Is that, you know, like you said, manipulation? No, but I think that it's just how we were created to, to really cohabitate with people, you know, and just really get things done. Essentially, even like I said, to parenting, like with my kids, all five of my kids are very different and I have to relate to them differently. I have to discipline them differently. And I want to make each of them feel seen and heard in their own different ways. And one of them, it could just be sitting with them and talking one. It could just be, you know, cuddling on the couch, whatever it is. It's just those ways of making someone open up and come alive. And it's on, if you do that, then you don't have to manipulate. It just kind of opens up them and empowers them to be who they're supposed to be. And they can get things done. (laughs) So I love this because we're all like, you know how you just do this and you do this and you do this. And one day I had this same conversation with Joe and she's like, Aaron, you are speaking another language that I don't know. (laughs) I think Stacy, what you were saying is it's a superpower that we have, right? It is a superpower with purpose. And while it could look like manipulation, and I think people can use it and will use it for manipulation, it's also there so that we can do exactly what you said to empower people. And we do use those connections. Sometimes it's hard to walk in and get all the moving pieces, but I don't know about you. It's one of my favorite things to do. Like when I was running our school council and we would sit at these board meetings with 40 people, I had to run it. And Being able to, in an instant, know who needs to be empowered, knowing who needs to be taken down because they're making other people uncomfortable and we're not going to get the best out of these people or anything they have to offer because that person is sucking it out. There's such quick calculations that we're not usually aware we're even doing it. We're just reacting to it. I believe that is a social thing primarily. Like I don't think that the other types get that from my conversations with them. And it's a curse too, right? Because we are aware all the time. I don't know about you, but when I'm aware of someone else and trying to make a movement or change, I don't have the ability to pretend that that's not happening if they are part of the team I need to move forward. It's uh, sometimes a struggle and it will leave me feeling drained because I've had to deal with them. But at the end, you know how to get what you need to do for the team. And I think the purpose of it all isn't for 
our own selfish gain, right? Whatever it is we're passionate and, and empowering people for, it's for the greater good of the group. It's not for our personal good. I think that's where the manipulation piece can be misunderstood is that we're always, without doubt, looking at the bigger picture of the bigger group, whether it be our family, whether it be the organization, whether it be our community, whether it be our country. Sometimes being able to do that and knowing that we can do that is hard. I think it takes an incredible amount of discernment too, because we see all these things and we're constantly making these calculations. Like when is it appropriate to respond instead of react, to get curious and ask questions like you did with the little league? Like when is it going to be, you know, beneficial to take a step back and allow that to develop versus when do, when does it actually require our action to like jump in at that moment, set a boundary to do something, you know, like I'll take, you know, for instance, this this past weekend at the bachelorette party, I mentioned how like the groom sisters were like two of the most annoying people I've ever met in my entire life. For most of it, I could take a step back and be like, okay, this doesn't affect me. They're just annoying and loud and it's okay. And they're going to do what they're going to do. I'm not going to shit on their good time, even though they're annoying me. But then there was like a point where we were trying, we like rented a yacht to go out into the San Diego Bay. We did kind of like this day was like a group thing with like the groomsmen. And so it was the bridal party and the groomsmen and the groomsmen were already there. The car that I was in, the main road that we needed to get to the dock was completely shut down. There was traffic that was just stopped for like three miles. And so we were able to turn around and it was kind of a nightmare, but we were able to finagle it and get through. The other car that had the bride in it was completely stopped in traffic. It was over an hour and they had not moved. And one of the sisters was in my car and she's calling the other sister in the other car and they're shouting at each other and screaming at each other. You need to turn here. You need to find a parking lot. You need to do this. You need to do that. And eventually I had to be like, Monica, this is not helping. They cannot do anything. They are already stressed. They understand the ramifications. Everybody knows that Katie, the bride, is in that car. We all want the same thing, right? We all want them to get there. At a certain point, you need to take a step back and realize there is nothing they can do. So for everybody's sanity, I need you to stop screaming and stop telling them what they need to do because they can't fucking do anything. Okay? So like, you need, this is not helping. Just recognize that like they're doing what they need to do. And then like we get to the place and Katie, like the bride, they get there and she was like, oh, you know, we made the best of it. Like we were playing carpool karaoke. We turned on our like Phantom of the Opera and our Disney movies. And we started like unpacking some of the food and had a little picnic. Like, honestly, the calls were just interrupting our good time. And I was like, I need you to stop trying to fix shit that can't be fixed right now. Because it is not helping anybody. It's just making everybody more stressed out. Please shut the fuck up. Very much trying to find that level of discernment of like, when do I need to take a step back, even though I recognize? And when do I need to jump in and like set that boundary and say something? And which one is going to be more greater good than the other? Yep. I think it's a constant calculation. In the past, I don't think I would have calculated it. I think I probably would have just done what I felt immediately instead of actually pausing to decide what was worth it. Did you figure out you were an eight at the beginning? Did all of it fit? Did some of it not fit? And do you feel like a softer eight being the counter type? I instantly knew I was an eight because of all the motivations. I didn't even have to read the other types to know. I was just like, this is, yeah, this is me. Um, But I think some of the things that didn't always gel with me were a lot of examples or like stereotypes of eights. I'm like, oh, well, that person's just being abrasive or rude because they're not caring. And I think that's the difference is I can play the game enough to 
be polite or I can, I don't know, be social enough to see where other people are. I don't know. It's just that it's that radar of like reading the room and knowing that I can be human with other people and speak their language enough to not have to be rude, even though inside I'm like, would you just please stop? I'm feeling all the feelings, but I feel like I have this like alternate skill where I can, I don't know, adapt to my environment. Yeah. Um, I think I definitely knew I was an eight from the beginning. Like once I, I took a test and it said eight and I was like, yeah, this sounds pretty on the nose in terms of the motivation, the values, the the core fear, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think similarly to Jess, I think I took a lot of issue and still do. I frequently make comments on her page and on other pages about a lot of the stereotypes being like cold and harsh and vengeful and manipulative and like all these different things. And I think I take a lot of issue with that. And I do feel like being a social aid is being a lot softer and being able to, I think, go a lot more into emotions and connection and like the human experience than I think. And that's not in any way like a slight or a comparison, I guess, to other eight uh, subtypes, but just like feeling a lot more connected to like our own softer sides and being able to connect to other people's softer sides in a way that I guess is just inherently a little bit more vulnerable, even if we want to control our own vulnerability, like as our core fear and our core motivation, like being able to connect to others in a way that I think is a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit softer. And just like, I know, especially for me having just like very little self-preservation instinct, (laughs) that anticipation of needs for other people and the amount of empathy and self-sacrifice almost to the point of detriment (laughs) that I have just because like going back to that comment I made earlier of like taking for granted, like I know that I'm going to be okay. Like I know that I'm strong enough to handle this. I know that I'm going to be okay. I know within myself that I'm going to be able to handle whatever comes at me. So I have that part of myself to give, even when that's not necessarily true, which is just highlighting like my abject lack of self-pres whatsoever. I identify very strongly with a lot of the core stuff of AIDS. And I see that in a lot of my own behaviors, but not necessarily with a lot of the, the stereotypes and the descriptors that are used for most eights. And I think the way that the world and a lot of other types perceive eights to be. First thing I was like, I'm an eight for sure. And then I started questioning it when it was kind of the height of the meme culture, you know, when it was like all like the words and the drawings and all this stuff on Instagram. And I was like, I'm not an asshole though. Like that's like, I mean, I can be, but like, I'm not just going to go up to somebody and be rude. Like, I'm just not like, if, if I feel like they warrant it, then maybe. So I was just so confused. I was like, so I was like, well, maybe I'm not, I don't know what I am then. So I was like, you know, trying to figure it out. And then the more I read and learned about the motivations, I'm like, why is everybody so consumed with how AIDS are acting when it's supposed to be about motivation? Right. So then I'm like, well, nobody else knows what they're talking about, but I do typical eight, right. That's just shown me right then that like, no, I'm an eight. Y'all are all wrong. You're either probably a sexual four, a counterphobic six or a three that thinks it's cool to be an eight. Like that's, those are the people that like brag about being eights and are like jerks to everybody they come in contact with. And so Joe and I would so agree with that statement. We (laughs) see that a lot. Especially like the people that comment on the memes. I'm like, ooh, y'all don't even know. That is not the heart of an eight. You have no idea. Yeah, I'm very passionate about that because they give us you'll, a bad You'll time. see that we have no memes on our podcast. None. <laughs> or like anti-eight memes. It. Yes, that's why I resonate with y'all so much is because I started listening. And that's when I really, honestly, when I start found your podcast and hearing like from childhood to now, I'm like, 
yes, everything you were saying, I was like, yes, yes, yes. This is me. This is me. It was like, okay, I'm not just the weirdo that has motivations of eight, but doesn't act like it. And I started learning about subtypes and I was like, this is so true. And if you just want to pick your number just to be a meme, that's fine. But if you want to grow, then you need to look into subtypes, try types and all of that. That was kind of my journey with finding it. Now I'm very passionate about not just learning someone's number just to know their number, but growing together. Eights as a whole rebel against social norms, right? But the social eights were more oriented towards people and protection and loyalty. And I think the protection and loyalty piece makes us that much softer because we're always looking out to protect who's ours to protect. And I think our need for power comes out in having strong influence over other people, as opposed to just having power over people. We want to influence people for their better. The two stuff, I think that that's like a really powerful comparison too, because like so many people say that like social aids look so much more like twos. And I think especially for women in Western society, like a two is essentially what we are told we're supposed to be. And so I think like a lot of women just like instinctively, like they read that and it's not even like they identify with it. They're just like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be. So this is what I am. And then I think there's a lot of people, especially women who are social aids who look at that and they're like, well, I really don't know because this does like, this sounds really good, right? Like this sounds like a lot of what I do. This sounds like a lot of my behaviors. I really don't resonate with what people are saying about eights or the descriptors of this type. And here's what I'm told that I'm supposed to be. So I'm going to say this, but I do think like a lot of people mistype or like, don't want to be a social aid or don't want to like recognize that they are because there's so much like misleading and just misnomers of like what being a social aid is like at our truest form. And I think it was actually your, you and Joe, that we're talking about like the triads and how like the two has the nurturing, but is missing the protection and the eight offers the protection, but is missing the nurturing and the five just doesn't have shit. And like, I think that like the thing that sets the social eights apart or like makes them look so much more like twos is we have that like fierce instinct for protection and loyalty, but we're able to offer a little bit more of that nurturing sense than I think some of the other types are in that like empathy and emotional connection and like how that actually connects us to like other human beings. But I think that that's like a really like interesting like piece of the puzzle in that. I find when you can find your instinct first, it makes more sense with the numbers because a lot of instincts look like different numbers. Okay. Talk to me about power structures. Do you care? Do you join them? Do you fall in line? Are you aware of them? I always tell people that I don't have a problem with authority. I can follow leadership. And if the incompetence of leadership directly affects me, that's when it starts to become a little bit of an issue. And so something, so I got kicked out of college (laughs) in undergrad and the authority that told me, you know, don't come back. I, I didn't give a shit. If they said to leave, I was like, okay, well, I'm still getting a performance degree. It's just not going to be here. And you guys suck. When that power structure didn't serve me necessarily. I found a different school, got a full ride, got a degree, and now they have to answer to me (laughs) in this music teacher's organization, which is really fun. And especially since I changed my name since I got married, um, some people have literally like almost peed their pants whenever they've seen me (laughs) at board meetings. The hardest part of power structure is if I'm being controlled, I will be like physically unwell. If it's something that doesn't necessarily directly affect me and I can do my part for the greater good. Like I can function with what I can control. Um, But the second my freedom is taken away, I am like a caged animal. 
my relationship with power structures has a lot to do with like seeing through things very easily. Like, like I said, I can see kind of through people's behaviors to understand their motivation and their, their goals. And I think my most toxic trait as an eight is that I kind of decide what rules apply to me and what don't. And like, that's where I get into trouble with ones because like, especially when they're in power and they're like, this is the rule. And I'm like, but it's a, it doesn't apply to me. Like, this is why the rule was created. I understand. I see completely through why the rule was created and what purpose it serves. That doesn't apply to me. So I'm not just going to listen to it arbitrarily. So I think like, that's where I get into trouble. And I think especially having the four as the second in my tri-type where like that authenticity piece is like a lot of that driving factor. And so as a social eight, I can clearly see the power structure. I can clearly see the dynamics. I can see straight to the core of like what is trying to be accomplished and what they're trying to do and stuff like that. But like, I am not going to act inauthentically just to fit in with a power structure. So I can see it perfectly. And I know exactly the consequences that are going to happen if I don't play nice, but unless it like feels authentic to myself or it feels like I'm doing something with like a good purpose, I'm just straight up not going to do it. So I think like that's where I have like a little bit of an interplay with like power structures and when it serves me and when I get into a little bit of trouble. Yeah. So I have an interesting relationship with power structures as well, because I have six in my tri-tyke. And so I just automatically um, question my authority. It's just, I didn't know people didn't do that. Honestly, like, you know, you just blindly trust somebody that you don't even know? Like, how is that possible? So Smith, I think it was you saying that tagline of um, teach you how to think, not what to think. And that's the kind of like school my kids are in there in classical education because I want to teach them the same things. Like I want them to think critically. And so with power structures, that's kind of how I go about it. I want to think critically about something. If it's not a big deal, I just won't follow the rule and then just try to fly under the radar. And then if it is a big deal that's affecting me or people I care about or a cause I care about, then I definitely will take action and either become a part of that, you know, try to work in that group somehow to make a change. And if that doesn't work, then, you know, I'll just remove myself. That's kind of how I go about it. When I was in college, I worked for this camp and this was, I mean, back in the early 2000s. And so I had just gotten a nose ring and they told me to take it out because it's a Christian camp. And I was like, why? And they're like, well, you know, it could be perceived such and such. I'm like, okay, show me biblically where this is not okay for me to have a nose ring. What, who is that causing to stumble? You know, and I went this whole thing and I fought, you know, on these other girls were like, we'll just take ours out. It's fine. I'm like, no, like it's the principle of the matter. Like I, like, I know it's not a big deal. It's just the principle of the matter. I just got this pierce. Why can't I have it in? Cause I have a sparkle on my nose. Like someone else is going to be offended and not follow Jesus. No, that's not how I, like, that's not how it works. So like, that's just like a dumb example, but like, it's kind of like you're, you know, baseball example. If you want to see change, you I, I make it happen in some sort of way. Now I, I will say like, I usually do go about it in a more alliance type of way where I know who to, um, I guess, connect with and kind of um, figure out how we can make this change happen without causing like a big scene or causing like a big uproar. But yeah, if I see that a change needs to happen, I'll make it happen. And I usually question every authority that's ever <laughs> place above me. <laughs> I can play the part so long as I believe in what they're asking of us. And when I don't believe in what we're, is being asked of us, or it doesn't make sense or doesn't apply to me, then I can't do it. And I won't do it. I don't have any problem going against authority when I don't believe it's for us. And I don't, I don't have any problem justifying it either. And I don't, I don't know, it causes problems with other people who think that I think I'm better than everyone else. 
which is completely not the case. It is that I don't have a choice. I, in my body, cannot just do something because I'm told to do it when I innately know it isn't right or not good, or it's not good for me, or it's not good for my kids. We live very much in a gray area. Like, I think we really reel against black and white. Like we have a propensity for black and white thinking for ourselves, but like when it's being arbitrated against us, like we, we really hate black and white and we live a lot in that gray of like, well, in this context, this makes sense. But in this context, this doesn't make sense. Eights, I think a lot of us, especially socially, it's just feel so misunderstood in our type. And then when you have somebody who you think that you've been so authentic and vulnerable with, and you've shared that side and it's so uncomfortable, and then they still like are so committed to misunderstanding you or like, don't even think to give you the benefit of the doubt or to defend you. Like that part hurts like so viscerally. And I think sometimes we need to be fought for, like we need to be worth it too. Right. And those are the people in, I don't know, as I grow, I'm like, okay, who are my people who will fight for me too? It doesn't mean- Do you think that's a social late thing or a healing process growth part of us of trying to see where other people are coming from as well and holding that space? I think I've always been really good at seeing where other people are coming from. I think that's always something I've been capable of. The difference for me is not making it mine to do to fix. Yeah, because naturally we're very compelling and we can change people's minds at the drop of a hat, I feel like, if we want to. But like you said, it's not always ours to do and it wouldn't always be the time nor the place nor authentic. Yeah. And that's why I asked if it was a, so if you thought it was a social eight thing, because I know like, like obviously all eights in general, like we're very justice oriented. And like, especially if we feel like we're being slighted when we have like a very justified reason for doing something, or we like, we have something that we did very intentionally for a specific purpose. And it's just being so outlandishly like taken out of context. Like there's a huge driver for like, I want to write the record. Like I want to set the record straight. I want to defend myself. I want yeah. to get justice out of the yes. situation. But then like having the wherewithal to I like, think take you're right. back and being like, that is the growth piece. Right. It's to not respond. And to be okay with that. I don't have to fight the entire world. This is human and human and we're both struggling and like there's space yeah. for these to exist. Ooh, that's good. Therapy. This is like a support group. <laughs> I know, we, don't, we don't need to pay for therapy. We just need to hang out on Zoom. I know. That was one of the things that this retreat I was at, these women were all talking very deeply. We had these prompt questions and mine were like, I mean, I would just get the point and everybody's just talking and talking. And I leaned over my friend. I'm like, I'm like the most cut and dry person here. Everybody's getting deep in their feelings. I don't even know how to go there. She's like, they're probably just all threes and they love talking about themselves. <laughs> nope. No, those sexuals really are good at it. Really? Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, I have four in my tri-type and sexual second, so I can also very easily fall into that trap. It takes my social to be like, okay, zoom out. There's more people here. It's nice that you have a choice. Right. And I feel like that too, like, because I have sexual second. I feel like I can go into those spaces, but I'm so matter of fact all the time. Like, it takes a really concentrated effort to get out of my, like, matter of fact and be like, no, actually. Like, my texts are very just, like, cut and dry. Like, point. I have sexual last, so I can't even go there. See, it's funny. Like, I know we didn't go to it, but the question that was like, how is your second and your stacking your like play space? Yeah. Like, that's how it's my play space is um, I have I, every single thing I've ever said is long story short. And then I proceed to tell the full length unabridged <laughs> version of the story. My sexual second <laughs> is like going into a party. And if I find like one person who I really connect with, then I can zone out of the party. Yeah. I can also just decide to jump back into zoning right back into the party. But I love when, yeah, I meet someone and I'm like, this is great. Now mine will be like, 
wait, I'm hungry or I need to work out I do this. And I'm thinking about what I need to do. Can I get out of this conversation? Do that. What's more important? Like that's, <laughs> I only get to that when I'm like absolutely fully drained. When my battery is at like between zero and 10% and my alarm is ringing at me going, get out. But unfortunately it doesn't hit until I'm literally at the bottom of the barrel of my energy. That's why I have a cut across my neck. My thyroid is out because of that. See, I really would like to do a poll about who has self-prez last in eights because I swear. And how have you almost died because of it? Yes. I have stories. I have about a pound and a half worth of blood clots worth of stories. But do you find you now you pay attention to those bells now, like those warning signs you now, instead of pushing them aside, you're like, all right, I better pay attention. (laughs) Yes. And I'm in like trauma therapy, like EMDR reprocessing shit of like, this is what's gotten me here. My like propensity to say, I'm I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. And just push past all the warning bells and being like, oh, my body actually knows a lot. And I already know, like, I know my body very well. And my body knows me very well. And like, I'm very attuned with my body. When it gives me warning bells, I need to listen and not just push through like a freight train through barricades. I think it's a blessing and a curse. Like it gets us to be able to accomplish things, but at the same time, because we can do that, we just keep doing it. So we don't so dangerous, but, and I say that all the time on the podcast. I'm like, if there's anything I can tell you is to listen to your body. I think that would be a really funny episode though, of like getting AIDS together and being like, tell your story of how you almost died because you didn't listen to your body. So true. I I listen to my body so much. Like I still press last. (laughs) I know. That's what I'm saying. Like I'm like my emotions. No, my body. Yes. <laughs> well, those emotions go somewhere in your body. So no, right. yes. maybe you well, let them out. The last time I'm like, I'll have like a negative emotion. I'm like, what happened today? I can't even remember why I'm having this like weird feeling. I need to like think process it. Cause I feel it in my body, but I don't know. <laughs> that happens to me still too. I, this friend who I had the falling out with, I ran into her at a dance competition my daughter was going to. And it was the first time she walked up to me and said, hey, it's really nice to see you here. And it's the first time we've spoken to each other in two years. I just said, oh, yeah, it's so nice to see you too. That was the end of it. And my other friend was like, I didn't know you guys were talking. And I'm like, we're not. That's the first time we've spoken in two years. And then I just continued the story I had been telling her prior to Michelle coming over to talk to me. And she's like, what is wrong with you? Like, what? Like, I don't know what the problem And she's like, are you not like feeling anything? And I was no. And then it was like, the, like I went home and I went on my day. And then later in the day, I was like, well, that weird thing happened. Like I have like nothing. And then the next day I felt completely off and was like, oh, I don't even know why or what this is, but it has to be related it was so okay, weird. Honestly, that would be such a good podcast or community discussion topic, given that like we're in the body slash gut triad and all eights are like so attuned to their bodies, but like how we listen to them and how like emotions and self-pres and shit like manifests within them. That would be honestly such a fantastic topic. I have to read you something someone wrote because we're talking right now about Enneagram ones in our group. I thought it was wild because they were talking about ones and how they don't understand how we just allow our guts to make decisions for us and how ridiculous that is when you need to have logic behind it. I was like, he said, why do eights trust their guts so much that they abandon logic and stick to their guns to the point of being ridiculous just because they want something. Cause my guts usually right. So bad. Therefore they can will it into being. Because my body feels it before my brain does. My gut's right? usually right before I can even figure I, out why. Yes. Usually so, we all feel like, that. 
And every time I use my brain and I use my logic and go against my gut, I was wrong. I should have done the thing that I would, was going to do initially every time. My body, I, I know it in my body and I can't explain it in my head, obviously, because I can't go to that logical place before my, my body feels it first. Yeah. And then I can try to go there, but it's, usually, it's a concentrated effort, right? Like of like playing is. things and thinking things. And well, and with three in my tri-type, like I even suppress it, like all my emotions even more. So I just stay in that gut and sometimes go to head. And then I get really uncomfortable going into that heart and like digging into feelings. Cause I just feel really like icky and like, I, I don't know. It's just, it doesn't feel comfortable and natural. Are you good at allowing someone else? Oh, like, I, person I, I, yeah. And that's it. I'm like, what are you feeling? Like, how does that make you feel? And I'm so great at pulling that out of other people, but I can't go there. That's what another thing my mentor is always like, I know, you know it but what are you feeling? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I can say like, oh yeah, that was like scary or that felt really, uh, that's not even true. Cause I'll say that felt really off or that felt not right. Like those aren't real emotions. <laughs> okay. So first of all, I think that Brene Brown is actually my real mother. Um, <laughs> and I will, I want my brain to be attached to hers like matrix style, but I will say as coming from a four who is just an ocean of emotions all the time, like me being eight, four, six, I am just emotions to 11 all the fucking time. Her book from like a year or two ago called Atlas of the Heart is phenomenal because she was like, I went through society and I found out that the vast majority of people only know how to identify three emotions, sad, mad, happy. Those are the only three emotions that people actually can Sounds about right to me. That's the root. She literally created a book that was like, here are the different human emotions and what they mean in different contexts. And if you have a hard time, like identifying with your bodily sensations and your emotions, she, she is is a one. And so she was like, if you have a hard time, like identifying with your emotions and figuring out what you feel and how to express it or how to work through it here are like, like she literally laid it out in like a roadmap of like, here is emotion and emotional processing. And it's immaculate for people who just don't have language to put to those. And what I have been taught through all, you know, this whole growth process is that any negative emotion is either an alarm system going off for some unmet need that you have in your life or someplace that I have like judged somebody else and I don't need to be judging them. And so it's like figuring out the root cause of it, which is still weird, but it helped me put a little logic into my emotions of like how I can process it, you know, because yeah, if I could, if I didn't have that, like for, like I can't read, I love the Enneagram 8 podcast Instagram until the answers get too long. I, I just, I can't, I can't go there. I'm the one with the long answers. <laughs> I don't resonate with that at all. <laughs> I'm the same. I skim. I'm terrible. Initially, when she was doing the research for this book, she was going to put the emotion or the feeling of resentment in with anger. And she was like, it just makes natural sense that like when you're resenting of something that it's part of anger. And she was like, as a one with like anger being repressed constantly, like I picture ones as like the little guy from inside out, the anger guy, just like right here, like constantly ready to blow that they just won't let. And so she was like, my natural assumption was going to be to put it in the anger. And then she consulted somebody who's like an emotions researcher. And he was like, no, resentment is actually part of envy. And she was like, what? That makes no sense. Like, how is resentment part of envy? He was like, resentment is the envy that somebody else is allowing themselves or giving themselves permission to do something that you won't give yourself permission to do or have. 
And so like, if you're resentful that somebody takes time to rest, you need to look at the fact that you're envious of the fact that they allow themselves to rest without a value judgment being placed on it. And you're not, if you're resenting that they're doing something or buying themselves something, it's because like you are envious of the permission structure they've given themselves to do or have that thing that you won't let yourself do or have. And just that piece of information, the book is chock full of that kind of stuff, but just that information alone has like completely reframed how I interact with people. And like when I judge them or like when I like start getting angry about something, I'm like, wait a second. I think what I'm feeling is envy because they're allowing themselves to do something I won't allow myself to do for whatever reason. And then it's my job to dive in and figure out why am I not allowing myself to do that? But like that piece was mind blowing. Yeah, me. that's awesome. I And I feel like that's the journey of the Enneagram, right? Like it's been, it's been making me pause and question what I'm doing right. all the time. And get curious, just be really curious about what is going on in my body or what is that reaction I'm having and why am I having a reaction to it? Like, what is it in me? Like, what is this bringing up for me that's making me so uncomfortable? I know, like I said, we're doing ones in our group right now. So I need to, I need to really like a one. (laughs) (laughs) So terrible. I think you and Joe are talking about it. Ones that we are not connected to, we can't be connected to in any way, not in our tri-type, not in our wings. Like there's no connection to ones. I think that's why it's so hard. And we're both typically like stronger personalities. We're both both in the body triad, but like nines are just so repressed. And then like both of us have anger as like the primary emotion, but eights are like anger forward. We blow up and then it's fine, but like ones are feeling repressed. And so like they won't let themselves feel that. And that anger is being internally turned on themselves. Yeah. And I don't feel like, I don't know if they're going to tell me what they're really thinking or they've got all this stuff going on in their head. I think there's that like mistrust there because like you said, we can kind of identify with nines a little bit because we can wing over there and we need to, but ones we, we just have no access. Yeah. And we're both very headstrong. Mm-hmm. We think we're right because yeah. we are. <laughs> it's not the ones. <laughs> no, never. One of my closest friends was married to a very unhealthy one. And so it's, I got to see the best of him, but I also see the worst of him and worst of him usually comes out at me because I'm the only person who will challenge him. And I'm the only person who will hold him accountable. And till my friend asked me not to do that anymore because it makes her uncomfortable. And then I was like, Oh, okay. Cause my mom is a one. They see the way the world can be and they're not meeting that. So they're projecting their self-judgment outward as well. And so Anytime I feel judged by one, I just think they're feeling that much more. They're judging themselves that much harder. And so that's really, that's a really, you're right. And that is that um, when Suzanne talks about ones, she talks about the inner critic, right. And how they're the only one who constantly has something, someone, a voice chirping at them all day long, telling them how bad, how not good, how inadequate they are. Right. And so I do have a lot of compassion for that. It cannot be easy to live with that all the time. Oh, cause I feel like I have an inner hype man, like being like, you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> I just say this quietly cause I'm in her house, but my mother-in-law is definitely a one. And <laughs> like, it's really funny because she thinks she's a two, because again, that's what women think that they're supposed to be, but she's definitely a one and like not a very healthy one at that. Like she's gone through a lot of shit in the last like two years, but like, yeah. I see it. I can handle her just fine because as an eight, I don't take anything personally. It's just water off a duck's back. Like I see through it and I'm like, whatever, this is just her expressing however she needs to express it. But like, I see it in the fact that like my partner is a three. And so he's a very like achievement oriented and like my worth is what I do and I need to be performative. But like that inner critic comes 
comes out so much because of like what she's imparted to him. And so like, I feel like as an eight, like that's where I struggle with it is because I'm like, I know what's happening and I need to dismantle it and I can't. And Stacey and I are like, yes, achieve, achieve. Yeah, yeah. you can. <laughs> and, and thanks to Sam, she's like, no, go into the emotions. And we're like, yes, we will go into the emotions. After we achieve. After yeah. we achieve. We will achieve going into the emotions. <laughs> See, that's where, okay. So that's where I get into like my eightness of like when people are like, oh yeah, the, the core motivation or core fear of AIDS is like avoiding vulnerability and control and stuff like that. And I'm like, that's where I can trick myself is because the, my challenge to myself is you're strong enough to go into vulnerability. You can handle it. You can fucking do anything. Like if you're strong enough to do this, you're strong enough to handle your own damn emotions. You created them. It's your brain. It's that I don't, I can't, I don't know them if I could figure it out. Right. (laughs) That's <laughs> you have to have enough silence in the day to have space yes, to make that's that. The problem. And that's You're what I was told my friend. I was like, I'm reading this deep question. I would need time to like really think about this. But someone me. needs you first. So just wait till they're all out of the house and you'll, you'll get it down. I don't You're know. Just give yourself 15 years. All my kids are, are in school. So I spend a lot of time being really curious about myself. And it feels really gross because it feels very too like, but. That's gross. I mean, I will say like, I am so thankful that I found all of this and like started this like growth and healing journey in my like early twenties when I didn't have kids and when I wasn't in a relationship and like all of these other things, because I had the space and I know that if I like had kids in a career and a partner, like already, like the show would have been so hard. And if you do go on and have kids in your future, like you're going to empower them in ways that I hope like we didn't know how. I know, because I think that that was my kids. I'm like, if I had known this when they were a little, like, I just, or in our marriage, when we had first yes. got this period, it would have yes. helped yeah. so Right? Much. Yeah. Yeah. So the earlier you learn it, man. Yeah, I'm so yes. grateful that I, I came about it early, because I can't even imagine how hard it would be to do when you have all that, like, when other people truly need you first. You just do a little bit less. <laughs> like, props to y'all. Well, well it was wonderful in, to see y'all again. This was really nice. Fun. I'm glad it didn't record last time so we could do it again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Happy birthday, Sam. Yeah, happy birthday. birthday. Bye. Right, okay, bye. That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface. And you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor. <laughs>